This podcast is supported by the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association, also known as VPLA. You're listening to PX77 today. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. Hello, Jess. Really looking forward to this one. Me too. Today, we're going to be exploring themes around regional planning as we speak with Marshall Sullivan, who spent most of his career in Western Victoria, having worked at Ballarat City Council, Geelong Council and Surf Coast Council, before starting his own consultancy, Context Planning. Welcome to the show, Marshall. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. No worries. Now, you were also in the Army Reserve for the Australian Defence Force. Was this before you were a planner or while you were a planner? Uh, it was it was before, but then um, then it sort of I was in the Army Reserve for a while, so I did both roles at um, at one point there. Jess, that's one thing Marshall and I got in common. I, we were both in the infantry, I think, Marshall. Indeed, um, and uh, yeah, transport for a little bit as well. So yeah, which is a pretty interesting time of my life. Fantastic. Now, can you just give a quick summary um, of your career to date? I'm not sure if I've covered everything in there because I know that you've moved around um, quite a little bit, um, particularly in the western western part of Victoria. Have I missed anything? Uh, sure. So um, I, I actually first started in local government, uh, in local laws at the Colac Otway Shire um, and Surf Coast Shire before moving into planning at the city of Ballarat that was uh, in 1999 and um, yeah I made my way through through the ranks there started off in enforcement originally and then moved into a, a planning role and then became team leader and um, ended up uh, as acting manager before I moved off to the city of Greater Geelong um, in 2018. And was that a career path that you um, went into intentionally or did it sort of just come about once you started working in enforcement you developed an interest in planning? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I kind of did fall into the role in part. I mean, I, as I uh, said, I mentioned I, I worked in enforcement, but there was a that my manager at the time was actually uh, Tim Helston. He um, he was he offered I get, he offered me a position in in uh, in planning, and um, he asked if I wanted to yeah progress my career and went off to uni and. Um, so that's how I kind of fell into the role. But before that, I, I originally thought I might get into something like drafting or architecture, possibly the police force. But um, yeah, ended up in planning and haven't looked back since. Marshall, you've done a stint in enforcement. That That's sort of a, a part of planning that's overlooked a lot of the time. And I know the enforcement work that I've had to do when you know I've done council stints, it's some of the toughest work out there in planning. Do you agree? It is. Uh, it is quite challenging. It's rewarding as well. Um, and I, I guess it did give me some really solid foundations to then become a planner. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, establishing those relationships with, with people and, um, and, you know, trying to achieve, you know, um, the, an outcome in, in, from a positive point of view, as opposed to, you know, going down the um, you know, a path of, of strict enforcement as such, which which you might have perhaps in in, in other areas. Um, it was really about. Hmm. Sorry. So, can we just explain to our listeners who might not know too much about enforcement what you're enforcing when you work for enforcement with a council? Yeah. So the the planning scheme, as you guys know, is is, is effectively a, a set of regulations, and 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 it's uh, and it's subordinate to the Planning Environment Act. So 
that when planning permits get issued, they effectively do become enforceable. And so under the Planning Environment Act, um, there's, there's a mechanism set up whereby the, the council uh, will, I guess, um, play an, um, a compliance role to, to ensure that you know, certain conditions are met or that the planning scheme requirements or provisions are adhered to. So it could be that there might be uh, an illegal panel beating business, for example, in a, in a residential area or that, you know, perhaps someone hasn't, you know, completed certain conditions of a permit, you know, like landscaping or the like, and obviously it gets a, a bit more complex than that, but yeah. Marshall, just casting your mind back to when you were a rookie planner, were there certain things that motivated you and certain things that caused you great anxiety? Yeah, so I guess the, the main thing in relation to the, the anxiety was just that fear of making the wrong decision or the, or the fear of making an incorrect decision. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're, you're young, um, you, you look towards your, your senior, the senior planners or the managers or the team around you. And um, I quickly realised how little I knew. And uh, that was something that I was I was always quite conscious of, and it did, yeah. I guess, and it's probably the same with all all planners and all professions, um, in fact. Um, and I guess in terms of that motivation, it was really just um, I, I always wanted to just focus on achieving good planning outcomes, and 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 I guess I always wanted to understand what that actually means, what what it actually meant to achieve a good planning outcome. And um, I guess I was I was lucky that I had um, some a good team around me as well to, to actually build up that, that experience, I guess. Marshall, with your progress through local government, were there particular lessons that you learned uh, along the way? And also, what did you learn about working in a bigger organisation? Yeah, so the biggest lesson that I've learned is really the importance of, you know, understanding relationships and communication and what that actually means to achieve outcomes and um and and i guess you know accepting that you know you don't have to be an expert in in everything you don't have to know the answer uh to everything um but i guess it's you know it's really important to make sure that you know where to get that information and and to um and also to to i guess challenge you know ideas that that and and opinions of others um whilst also you know still focusing on you know building those relationships but um yeah does, does that answer yeah it, it does marshall and one one thing that my clients really like i think is when i when they ask me a question and sometimes i'll say i don't know but i'll look into it and it almost gives them more reassurance than if i just sort of mumble out some answer without much substance to it any thought on that one yeah, I, when I was, uh, you know, in that team leader role, you know, quite often you'd have planners that would feel that they need to have a quick response. They need to have an answer to the customer. And I used to reassure them that it was okay just to take it on notice. Don't just come up with an answer um, just for the sake of coming up with an answer. Um, take it on notice, get back to them, you know, within a reasonable time frame with the correct answer because that's, that's the more important thing. And, and obviously people are going to respect that more than, than just being, you know, given... Just, just some sort of response just to just for the sake of it. I think that's really, really good advice and certainly <clears throat> something that I've always um, I guess taken on in my career as well is is always just being being certain of the answer before you try and, you know, mumble your way through as Pete suggests. But 
um, I think more more than ever that's that's important in local government as well because you don't want to go telling an applicant the wrong answer, um, particularly from a council perspective. It's probably quite a dangerous approach. So, and and yeah, I think as as Pete said, as a as a private consultant, which um, which I am, certainly appreciate when when council planners can just say, yeah, I'll take it on notice and get back to you. As as long as they get back to you, that's that's the most important thing, really. Correct. That's um, what I was just about to add, though. Just as yeah. long as I get back to you, that's amazing. Yeah, exactly. That's the key. <laughs> now, Marshall, you've also worked in, as I said before, two regional cities, um, firstly Ballarat and then Geelong. Are there any differences that you've observed in working in regional towns, um, sorry, between different regional towns? And, and before you answer that, Marshall, we've got a lot of listeners outside Victoria, uh, outside Australia. So, when, when we talk about Ballarat, could you just give a very brief summary of the place and also Geelong? Yeah, okay. So, the I mean, Ballarat and, and Geelong are similar in many ways. Um, I guess Geelong is, you know, is Ballarat on steroids, but it, there are some differences. But they both have their, their, their main issues. I mean, um, Ballarat is, is a city of around, um, or the, the municipality is a city of a, just under 110 odd thousand people and Geelong's uh, roughly about 260,000 people. So um, considerable size differences there. Um, they've, they've got similar issues, just I guess in terms of, you know, the green and brown field and, and just general go growth um, uh, issues. There's the infill and urban renewal opportunities. It's got their, you know, both have got heritage and obviously economic and employment pressures, environmental, agriculture, industry, and so on. Both have a similar relationship to Melbourne in terms of commuting potential. I guess the, the big one of the probably the big differences is with, with Geelong um, is that there's the coastal issues, which Ballarat obviously doesn't have, being you know inland to Melbourne, um, and 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 also I guess central Geelong. Now, yes, there's Ballarat has has its own city centre, but the I guess in more recent times, central Geelong has experienced some considerable growth and uh, and and pressures with with medium rise developments, um, and and yeah, I guess. The, but the, I guess that the standout issue or difference rather is yeah, some of those coastal issues and um, and you know with, with you know Geelong that has you know relationship to the bay and the coast, but also Lake Connawarri, which is a Ramsar wetland. Um, it it does separate the two issues considerably, but overall uh, very similar in, in in many of their planning issues. And Jess, uh, Marshall looked at, has looked after applications of mine in both Ballarat and Geelong. And I can tell the listeners he's very thorough. As a, he was very thorough as a council planner and um, made me work, work very hard for what I had to do. Right, Marshall? <laughs> that, that's right, Pete. Good on you, Marshall. Keep him, <laughs> keep him honest. No, no, we don't want that. Now, Marshall, I'm going to read you a quote. Nothing we see is still because we are never still. Now, I know you like philosophy. Does that resonate with you? Nothing we ever see is still because we are never still. Mm. I've got my own little philosophy and that's don't stop. Um, so because if you do stop, then there's, a, there's the risk that you um, you won't get going again. Um, and and look, I guess it probably does in, in some respects because you know, everything is just constantly moving and evolving. Um, so, yeah, um, I, I probably need to, time to think more about 
that one. I think there's probably some deeper answers to that, that question. But um, I, I suppose it relates to how we, we personally uh, and professionally are always evolving. So the Marshall Sullivan of 2021 is not the Marshall Sullivan of 2016. So there's constant, you, you referred to constant change, but we change as people, cities change, attitudes mm. change, yeah? Yeah, and you you learn, you make mistakes, you make good decisions, you make bad decisions, um, and yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one, Pete. Um, as I said, I'll probably need a bit more time to think about that one. But my my philosophy is don't answer Pete's philosophical <laughs> questions. <laughs> good one, now, Marshall, the other thing we wanted to talk to you about was mentoring. Um, obviously, this is a really important part of um, our role as planners, and I think we've all probably been mentors and been mentees um, at various points in our career. How important has mentoring been for you professionally? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of my time in council was in, in that leadership role as a as, you know, team leader and having having a team of planners and and the, the planners that were in my team would hopefully agree that, you know, I'm more than happy to spend as much time with, you know, sharing my knowledge and skills and experiences to those who want to listen to it. Um, there's obviously others out there that perhaps may not, and, and that's, that's fine as well. Um, uh, other people that, that know me know that I do play a bit of a devil's advocate type role. I like to, to challenge ideas and opinions. It's not to say that I necessarily am disagreeing with what they're saying or even necessarily believing what I'm saying, but I do like to um, to challenge that. And I, I think, um, yeah, I think that's all part of mentoring. I think that's, you know, to, to do that, it's, it's um, and, I, and, you know, I've had, again, good feedback and bad feedback on, on that, that way of doing it. And I guess, yeah, it, other people before me, my my um, you know previous managers used to do similar things, and and I learned a lot from that. So, yeah, that's... there's a lot to be said for being tough sometimes, Marshall. I mean, you, you've got you've got an open mind, and you've got an inquiring mind. That's what I've always found. You've always asked you know lots of questions, and and, and thought about issues fairly deeply. So, um, you know, sometimes mentoring can be tough. Sometimes you've got to. Uh, you know, let people know uh, you've got to lift your game or look, we really need to spend a lot more time on this stuff. And, and that's not easy sometimes, right? Oh, for sure. You know, and, you know, talking to people that, you know, where it might be a, you know, perhaps it might be a challenging planning issue. It could be a performance issue. It could be just, you know, just exploring a new idea. Um, it's, yeah, it's challenging. I like to perhaps use the word more challenging um, than, than tough. Um, but um, but yeah, it's 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 also fun. I mean, it's also I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. We thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. Now, um, work is with us a lot these days, Marshall, you know, with emails, you know, calls, 
it's not the old traditional nine to five Monday to Friday things. How do you leave your work behind you when you're not at work? Yeah, well, working from home obviously is a bit of a challenge, but that's, that's probably the, a lot of people in that position now. It's tough, you know, running your own business. Um, you know, you're always wanting to, to you know, um, do the best job possible for, for clients and, and, you know, achieve great outcomes. And, and yeah, it's, 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 it's a challenge. I guess I'm one of the lucky ones in terms of where I live. Um, I live down the, the coast and I'm you know, really close to the Great Otway National Park. And, you know, just even last night, turned off the computer, went down the beach and you quickly forget, um, albeit for a, for a short period of time, but it's, that, that's what I do, Pete. And uh, Marshall, another tough question for you, moonshots, um, you know, that idea of something very, very challenging. What are the sort of moonshots that are in the planning and development space? It's a pretty big question, but any mm. suggestions that you think, you know, we need to go places where we perhaps haven't been or the, our current thinking needs to be challenged or extended? I'm glad you clarified what a moonshot was there, Pete. I was wondering what, where you were going with that. <laughs> well, well, Jess, it gets back to, you know, in the early 60s, they said, right, we're going to go to the moon. <laughs> and at the time, the technology wasn't there. They said, okay, we're, we're going to do a moonshot. We're going to just, in the decade, we're going to, we're going to do this. So that's where, it, that's where it comes back from. Sorry. Yeah, good question, Pete. Thank you for that one. <clears throat> um, oh, you know, I mean, just using um, current situation with COVID, for example, there's, there's, there's some amazing opportunities, really, in terms of, you know, improving processes with technology. And that's, that's been forced upon us just in terms of just simple things like having online meetings, which in, improves efficiency. And I know that's probably not necessarily a moonshot, but if you were to perhaps say, you know, over you know, 12 months ago that um, what was going to happen has happened, it, it would probably have taken 10 years to plan. Um, but I guess, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's so many opportunities with improvement to processes with you know decision making um you know um i guess just thinking about how we can use technology to to do that better um you know and it can just start with very very simple things uh like you know removing removing the, the need to to fill out you know application forms and just do everything online. Um, now, I know a lot of councils already do that, but there's some councils that don't. There's some councils that still have, you know, um, old processes where you've effectively got to print off an application form or, or fill out a uh, print off a form and then scan it and then send it back in and then, when, then wait, you know, three or four days for a response. Um, you know, they're things that, that you know, are they're low hanging fruit, quick, op, uh, quick fixes that, um, should be able to be achieved. Now, again, I know they're not moonshots. I know they're not uh, major groundbreaking um, things, but but I think yeah, starting with some of those um, simple things would would be would be useful. Uh, we'll probably maybe come back to. Let me have a think about that question a little bit more. We may perhaps come back to it. No worries. I also just wanted to explore, um, I guess, your transition from being um, in local government into the private sector and how you've sort of found that transition um, in, 
I guess your attitudes towards um, developers and clients and how, how that's kind of transitioned between those two roles? Yeah, it's, that's a good question, Jess. Uh, the, it's, yeah, I guess, yeah, after 20 years in local government, you, you, you do sit in a different seat, you know, from, from consultancy. I've been doing the consultancy role now for about two and a half years and, um, and it's, it's considerably different, but I guess the transition has been fairly easy, I think. Um, you know, I, when, I, when I sat in the, in the local government planner's seat, um, I, again, you know, coming back to what I was saying before about building those relationships, um, I, I still do that, so that hasn't, that hasn't changed. Um, I obviously do work, um, you know, very hard for, for the clients and, and to achieve the outcomes that they desire. But again, when I was in the local government planner's seat, I did the same thing. Um, so yeah, I think that the transition has been fairly seamless in, in, in many aspects, but it has been challenging in others in, in terms of the, the, yeah, the, the um, perhaps the, the, some of the roles that, or some of the hats that I'm wearing and some of the, you know, the expectation of the clients, you know, my, my, my position description, so to speak, is, is, um, is very long um, and, and quite different to what it was when I was in council. And what what sort of things surprised you most when you changed? I won't say change sides, Marshall, because you know we're fairly fluid planners. We you know we can go you know either either way. We can be hybrids or whatever. But what surprised you once you left, say Fortress Local Government? Looking back at it, yeah, um, it wasn't necessarily a yeah. I guess it was a part in part a surprise, but. Just again, the um, the the role and, and the, some of the work that I'm doing uh, goes well beyond what I was doing in local government, um, and you know it, it'll be from you know the the very inception phase, you know, from from a client just wanting some advice on whether they should buy a property, um, through to you know permit implementation, planning scheme amendments, um, you know master plan. Uh, development, um, you know, the, the, there's just a long list. So I guess what has surprised me personally, it's not, it's probably not necessarily a big surprise, but just the opportunities that having moved into consultancy has given me in the world of planning. So, um, and it's been a re rewarding surprise, I must admit. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I do feel that I'm very lucky to, to be able to to do what I do, but I, I can only, I feel that I can only do what I do because I did what I did as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess looking back on your time in local government and, and also now in your new role, well, not so new role now as a consultant, are there particular aspects of development approval processes that you think um, perhaps aren't given the attention that they warrant and that could be improved? Yeah, um, I guess some, there's, it's probably not so much well yeah probably some policy development work is is could be could be improved and um you know when it comes to i'm just trying to think of an example i mean there's, there's the, the way policy is written is that it is quite a, a bit of a one-size-fits-all approach and sometimes that can um sometimes that can i guess impact on decision-making 
um, you know, particularly if there's a, a policy void. And, um, and, and I just feel that, you know, where there is an identified policy void, but, but you know that there's, there's a great outcome to be achieved, there sh I guess, in my opinion, there perhaps could be um, a lot more work done around filling that gap and achieving that great outcome. Um, and, you know, I think that that really applies to a lot of the uh, renewal project opportunities where perhaps, you know, the policy framework perhaps might be a bit outdated or just hasn't necessarily covered off on, on you know, a new and emerging uh, um, industry or, you know, opportunity, I guess. I think it's also about um, pushing beyond the status quo a little bit as well. I mean, something that Pete and I have spoken a lot about on the podcast over the many years we've been doing it now is around um, the challenging of ideas and, and how how we actually can bring in some of these new ideas into planning policy because it just it feels quite often like we're seeing the same ideas sort of replicated and reproduced in all these different parts of Australia or, or Victoria more locally. So that's the that's the part of it that I see um you know could be significantly improved but it's how we actually get to that point of getting the new ideas into that policy space that i think we need to do some work around yeah exactly and, and you know um you know i mean just just continuing that that point on policy development for example i mean you know there's there's certainly you know um you know respecting the intent of the you know a, a policy is, is paramount of course but um i guess it, it shouldn't necessarily also, you know, be in the absence of a of a, of a clear direction or, or policy. It shouldn't be a reason or excuse not to do anything at all. And I just think that there's sometimes when that happens, um, because there's there's a lack of direction or perhaps, um, you know, there might be some a fear of of making the wrong decision or what might be perceived as being a wrong decision because there's no, you know, not a particular dot point in the, in the planning scheme that says you can do it. Um, I just think that, that the risk of, of applying things like, uh, you know, a situation like that too rigidly is, um, you know, runs the risk of missing out on, missing out on, on great opportunities. I mean, Marshall, you know, policy is normally reactive. It's conservative. It's normally cut and paste from another place. And a lot of times it can't hope to capture, you know, uh, city diamondism and changes and, and just that the joy and potential upside and downside of experimentation. I, I, I think the planning profession's really got to lead that. It's, the politicians aren't going to do it. But do you think that the, am, I being un, am I being too gloomy? Um, well, yeah, I mean, obviously policies, you know, there's a, there's a process to develop policy and there's, um, and, you know, say policy, local policy, it's, you know, the, it's, it's, there's, there's a process to develop it. But, but again, I, I guess the way I see, um, yeah, I, I would agree actually. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 there needs to be some, but uh, yeah, there needs to be some courage, I guess, at a local level to, to not, not, um, yeah, to not fear making decisions just because um, uh, might go pear shaped. Sorry. But yeah. Yeah. What, what, what about Marshall? The idea of you know policy competitions. So <laughs> there's a lot of good things come from competition, and you know if if say the state government here or other state governments said 
look, all right, we're going to pay 20,000 bucks for the, the best idea about how we solve this problem. You know, that we've got, you've got six weeks to write it up. Do you think the, I mean, we never have competitions, do we? We have design competitions, but we never have policy competitions. Are you going to join us on this one, Marshall? Uh, look, I might sit out on that one. Um, it, 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 come on, stick your oh, neck well, yeah. out, stick your so, neck yeah. out, come okay. on Marshall, you're a tough guy, come on. So, so you're talking about a, you know, a competition on on developing a, a policy on, on whatever it might be, um, uh, yeah. is that what you're talking uh, about? Uh, or? Uh, okay, homeless. For the most outlandish ideas. No, 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 Jess, come on, <laughs> be, be fair, be good, be, be kind. Um, sort of, all right, how do, we, how do we house the homeless, right, um, in, a, in a practical way? Uh, how do we get better diversity with, up, you know, apartment development? How do we, how do we get better boat wraps? You know, all sorts of all sorts of things we can throw open. So we're not we don't have to rely on the the same the same same the the well the same well. Sometimes it goes stale, as you know, the policy well, just to bring in a whole lot of new ideas. Yeah. And I think you can, I mean, you can do it. You can actually do it, you know, using the existing framework. It's just a matter of how uh, you can, uh, I guess, interpret the, the policy to achieve the good planning outcome. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've been involved in a couple of urban renewal projects, you know, major projects in, in, in Geelong, um, you know, Little Creatures, for example, uh, and, you know, another, another major one in, in North Geelong. From a, from a policy point of view, um, and I don't know if, if the listeners have been to Little, little Creatures in, in Geelong, but it's, uh, it's roughly about 30,000 square metres, you know, former, former industrial site, um, and now it's been turned into a brewery and there's a huge hospitality component. Now, from a policy point of view, and the way you look at the, the purpose of the industrial zone, um, there's probably more reasons to refuse that outcome than to support it. Um, whereas you can, you can look at the broader benefits and they might not necessarily, the answers might not necessarily be um, evident in the planning scheme, but you can, but you can draw from, from other, um, other, you know, documents, other policies, other broader council directions, what the community aspirations might be. And, and just also just take a step back and ask yourself the question, is this a good planning outcome or not? And, and um, you know, I guess, yeah, looking at those just two projects off the top of my head, I mean, yeah, they don't, they're not strictly speaking supported by policy as such, but they're not not either. They're not not supported by policy. When you look at the, the broader ones that are a bit harder to interpret like you know, facilitating um, uses that, you know, are, are innovative or, or supporting um, activities that, that um, you know, create jobs or, or you know, employment and, and the economic benefits, which are a bit hard, they're harder to measure than, you know, the other policies around, you know, for example, industrial zone support manufacturing. Well, just because you're not supporting manufacturing in industrial zone doesn't automatically mean that it's a bad planning outcome. It can actually be an amazing planning outcome um, but again, that's, it's, it's just a matter of finding that balance, isn't it? Marshall, in, uh, in the state we are in, Victoria, um, third party rights uh, are very, very liberal. So that someone who doesn't like a decision can take that to VCAT, and, which is our tribunal uh, for listeners outside of Victoria that 
that he's planning disputes. That whole process can delay an application process at least 12 months. And the person who initiates that doesn't bear the other party's costs. Uh, Marshall, do you think we are too open here to third party rights? Because most other places would, would be amazed at how easy it is for someone, one person to halt a big development or halt a small development. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, obviously, um, you know, the um, public participation in planning decision making is important, but I do think that it's unbalanced at, at times in, in terms of, you know, the, the, the layers and the time and the cost that it can add. And, and you know, I think there's, there's certainly examples where the planning scheme has, has caught up from, you know, from, you know, when I first started, uh, you know, and things like public uh, you know, notice exemptions in the activity centre zone and urban growth zones, for example. But, um, yeah, look, I guess there's, there's I, th I think that the, the process or the framework, again, is probably in part sound. It's perhaps how it might be um, implemented. And, and, you know, I guess in relation to discretionary notice provisions, for example, um, which, which also would apply to public and private agencies. I think that some planners might take a more rigid view on, you know, if that if it's not exempt, then it automatically needs to be given notice. Um, now, I, I, that might be something that gets taught at uni. It might be a, a, um, something that's a decision that has been made internally because, um, you know, sometimes it's easier just to simply require notice and, you know, rather than dealing with a complaint from a, from a, from someone to, that, you know, that wasn't given notice. Well, I'll give you an example, right? So I've got a, I've got a project at the moment and it's a refurb of a, of a shop and we're, we're slightly increasing that the parking shortfall because we're covering in an area. We gave notice, the council's going to approve it. There's, sorry, the council has approved it. There's one objector. If, if that one objector takes, uh, takes us on to VCAT, we have to wait nine months this facility is going to employ about 25, 30 people. Uh, and that, that's when it's, when it's working. So the business operator is faced with a potential year loss of revenue and uncertainty, um, all because one person can take this to VCAT and go mm. to VCAT and say, look, I don't like this. I can't get a car park at the front of my house. This is an inner city location. Mm. Meanwhile, my client is stuck with, you know, a very expensive property you can't use, lots of people you can't employ, lots of people you can't serve. There's no, there's no fairness in this. There's no costing of the potential disaster it brings. I think it also needs to be more relevant to the scale of the development. So, you know, a, a small scale development like that has a particular... Um, process moving forward versus something, you know, 20 story tower, for example, in the middle of Melbourne has a, has a separate process and a process that's more um, aligned to the type of um, outcomes that it's providing. So uh, to me, it's more about the scale. But Jess, we've got to protect the small guys, we, you know, the small people in business. Yeah, that's what the I'm big, saying. The big people can look after themselves. But yeah, that's it, what I'm it, saying, it, though. The scale of it, if, if a small operator needs to have a different process because it's completely unreasonable in my view mm. um, for that to take nine months through. 
Oh, at least and the cost and the cost yeah uh, you know yeah uh, not not to mention uncertainty as well you know it's um it does it's it, it puts a whole you know, the whole process just becomes uncertain and you know with uncertainty brings you know um you know that, that can risk you know investment it can you know, risk employment it can it, it can impact on a whole a whole raft of different things so yeah you're, you're right um there probably does need to be well, I, well I, would, the, I would agree with what you're saying, Jeff. Yeah, yeah just I, I mean, Marshall, you know, I mean, the, the, the planning minister here, you know, um, has said, look on his watch, that's never going to be changed. But look, that's fine. But maybe there's some sort of analysis of the cost and not just the financial cost, but psychologically what that does mm. to players, I think. Anyway, t- turning to a, maybe a brighter subject, Marshall, um, you know, how do we rate what good planning is? How, how do we compare this was a good year or this was a good decade? How do we, how do we work out whether the planning system is working well? Yeah. Well, that happens all the time really, doesn't it? Um, in terms of how you, how you rate it, at least, you know, in terms of the physical sense, you know, the, the stuff that you get to sort of look around and, and, you know, how does it, how does it, how does a place make you feel or, you know, um, has, has it worked? So it gets rated in that way. I mean, but there's obviously other, other places, um, uh, sorry, other, other ways it can, you know, you can, you can rate it. I guess um, the, the, your views versus my views as to whether, um, it, a good planning outcome has been achieved is, is going to be different. Um, and I think that that needs to be acknowledged. So, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, by continuously learning and, and listening to each other and, you know, thinking about the good and the bad and, um, and, and even thinking about the stuff that you don't agree with or, or the stuff that you don't understand um, in terms of some of those planning decisions or, or, or the why the why you know why was something done that way or why did it take so long or why did they do it like that and and just thinking about that and and talking about it and learning from it um and i think that's that's what you do to rate it i don't think you necessarily get to get it well you certainly don't get a scorecard at the end of it because each each everyone's going to have a different view on it I, i reckon um i don't know if you guys think differently to that but what do you think jess how, how do we rate planning? How do we judge? How do we judge our effectiveness? Mm, it's a tricky one. <laughs> for, for, for another day? Okay. Very good question. <laughs> and there's many ways, I think, in which it could be measured. And I think, as you say, Marshall, it depends who you talk to um, and, you know, what, what emphasis you put on the measurement. So maybe it's a separate conversation, Pete. I think we could debate that one till the cows come home. <laughs> I remember this, this, you know, Back in my council days, you know, we'd have sessions on the good, bad, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, you know, and we'd ask the planners to come to the team meetings with what they thought was, you know, fitted into whatever category. And, you know, it would always, you know, someone might bring up a, a, what they thought was a good example. And then you'd have someone sort of shrug their shoulders and go, mm, don't know whether that's a good example. Um, and someone else might turn around and go, well, I think it is, you know, and, and that's good. I think that's, 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 that's um, what you do to, to help recognize it and at least understand it. And just because you don't agree with it, that's okay. 
Mm. But also understanding, I guess, the different opinions around, well, why do you think this is a good outcome and why do you think this is a bad outcome? And having that conversation, I think, is important because it does start to um, illustrate, you know, the different views in which can be taken on a particular application. And I think that's very important, particularly in local government. Yeah. And, and, and also, is it, do you think it's a good example from, for, from a personal point of view or do you think it's a good example because that's how, that was an, uh, an appropriate um, implementation of policy mm. or, or the planning scheme and vice versa? Thanks for the support from Ratio Consultants who provide high quality multidisciplinary support services across all aspects of planning, transport, economic assessment and urban design. One of Australia's leading planning related consultants for over 30 years with offices in Melbourne and Geelong. See our website for details. Now I also wanted to ask you about site inspections. Um, first of all, what was what has been your weirdest one over the year over the years? I feel like we've all got a funny story here. And um, what have you learned about them over the last few years? Um, I've had a couple of fun ones and interesting ones and, you know, abattoirs and went out to the Shell refinery and things like that. But the weirdest one I wasn't actually even involved with, it was someone that um, impersonated me um, at a brothel. I've got an evil twin too, who's always getting me into trouble. Maybe that's your evil twin. Well, um, so when the, um, uh, the, the lady um, came in from the brothel to the to the um, to the council office and said that I had visited the property. I asked if there was any security footage, and she said yes. And she actually brought it with her, and so I was interested to see it. Um, and that, and it certainly wasn't me um, or anyone that actually even looked like me. But um, so I'm not sure what the motivation for that person was. But that's probably the weirdest one. I haven't yeah, haven't had come across them someone impersonate me before. So. Were they wanting yeah. an extension to the brothel or something, were they? No, there was no current application or anything. And, you know, just looked at the the, the, the security footage. They just drove in and it was an old, old beaten up Falcon or Commodore or something. And they walked in, walked in all the rooms um, and then left. And that was it. Yeah, so, it, it wasn't me, Marshall. Um, <laughs> you know, one thing about site inspections and the reason we bring it up, Marshall, is because a lot of people just take, you know, a lot of planners just take for granted site inspections, but there's a big difference between seeing and observing, don't you think, on site inspections? And I find the more experienced I've got, the better I am at site inspections. Same? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I, and I love site inspections as well. But yeah, no, look, I, I think, yeah, look, it's, um, you know, really understanding that the context and, and I try also to go in with a fairly open mind I don't you know you know just go in and you just try to feel it or get out of the car um, you know sometimes I might time it to you know if it's you know to get a coffee or to have lunch and just maybe you know depending on what type of project you've got and if you've got time but yeah I guess um, it's um but they but they I mean they're, they're really important from my point of view so and um in the last five years, Marshall, what sort of things have you changed your mind on? Obviously, you've done that transition from um, uh, public to private, but is there anything in particular that you've changed your mind on? Um, yeah, probably, I mean, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess just thinking about planning permits, car parking is a big one. I, you know, I remember back in the day, 
that um, you know car parking reduction was was you know heavily frowned upon. Um, whereas now you know it's and I'm talking about you know in activity centres and and things like that. It's just not it's just it's just not an appropriate um, you know it's not appropriate to implement the strict provisions of the of, of car parking um, requirements when it comes to activity centre-based planning. Um, you know, it, it does need to be assessed at a centre-based level. There's plenty of VCAT decisions and, um, and and things around that. I think that the, some councils are still probably trying to catch up with that that notion that it's actually okay to, to let go of, um, of the car parking requirements. I guess the other area is perhaps some some of the liquor licensing or some of the um, entertainment type uses, outdoor dining, uh, and you know I think you know, again when we're when we're talking about activating places, um, you know particularly activity centres, it's it's okay to to you know encourage some of these uses that that create vibrancies that go into the into the evenings and yeah they'll they'll probably create some noise and and yes it, they they might be heard from beyond the boundaries of the premises um, and I think that yeah there's there's a risk of trying to over control that or, or to try to prevent that because you know the risk is obviously to it'll impact on on vibrancy and, and the success of those businesses um, so I think I've, I've probably um, yeah that's probably two areas off the top of my head that I think I've changed my, my mind on a, on a bit. Uh, Marshall, I think we're going to have a real crisis with commercial floor space coming up. There just seems to be a perfect storm that's already hit the sector. But a lot of the secondary shopping centres, you know, the, the amount of non-retail uses is fine because there's just no traditional retailing left in a lot of places like the butcher, mm. the fruit guy, you know, I mean, I can remember it when I was young, but gee, you'd be hard find a, you're hard pressed to find a butcher a lot of the times these days. For sure. And that's where, you know, then when, when, when you get um, a proposal and it might be somewhat innovative or, or, or certainly somewhat different to what you might, might ordinarily expect in a, in a particular zone. Um, and that's what I'm talking about earlier in terms of some of that, that policy or some of the you know a purpose of a zone might not necessarily strictly speaking acknowledge an activity but 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 it still can be um, a, a great planning outcome to, to support such a proposal you know it wouldn't have been that long ago where you know if people wanted to you know try to have outdoor dining taking up their car parking areas it would just it'd just be a flat no you wouldn't you wouldn't even don't even bother lodging an application whereas now it's all over the place and that that's been forced upon us as a result of COVID and, and I think, well, from my point of view, I think that's been a really a, a, a positive outcome um, to, to, to COVID and you know, supporting some of those good planning outcomes. Now we're coming to the end of the interview now, Marshall. A um, couple of last quick questions for you. Um, first one being, if you had six months away from your normal work to undertake a research project, do you have any idea what you would do? Yeah, I think I'd probably, look into architecture um, and probably in particular uh, the, the role of um, featurism and what that's had in, in Australia. Um, and I, I have read a book from, uh, it's called The Australian Ugliness. It's a 1960s book from Robin, that was done by Robin Boyd um, that looks into 
into all of that. And I think there's, um, you know, when I just think there's, I'd like to, to understand that in a lot more detail in terms of, you know, um, when it comes to heritage and built form and placemaking, because obviously that, um, you know, understanding where we came from um, would help us to understand where we should be going. And what 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 are we trying to actually protect in some of these cases? Um, you know, and that, that, that notion of featurism that I'd like to explore more. Wow, Marshall, you know, for someone who doesn't think about philosophical questions. Um, now I've got a true and false question for you. Um, the cut and paste function on keyboards is the most helpful computer process in the world of planning. True or false? True, um, but equal to that is the snip screen function. Um, I'd agree that. with you there. <laughs> single report and almost every email that I, I write. So, yeah. And what words do you live by? Oh, wow. Um, so, look, uh, um, I probably, I, I, you don't know what you don't know. So being open-minded to that, um, that, that helps me sort of keep an open mind to things. And finally, how do you refresh and relax? So what do you do outside of planning and work? Now, now Jess, before Marshall answers that, I've got, I've got something, a statement to make. Marshall's got something that I've wanted since I was six years old. Have you known Marshall since you were six? No, 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 no. <laughs> no I, I haven't. I've known him since, I think, Marshall, since Ballarat days in the early 2000s. That's when he used to give me a hard time, I think. But, um, but no, Marshall. Marshall, I, Marshall's got a Defender, Jess, which is just uh, something, a Land Rover Defender, which I've wanted since I was six years old. Marshall, I envy you. Yeah, 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 no, I love it. That's a, yeah, she's a little short wheelbase Defender and um, that's my toy. So I'm pretty lucky. And, and you take it out in the bush? Yeah, and yeah, so it's, it's great. I'm, as I said earlier, I'm pretty close to the um, Great Otway National Park. So I can you know, go for little drives out there and uh, I'm only a few hundred metres from the beach. So yeah, I'm pretty lucky. So but, um, that's what I do, Jess, in terms of getting out and relaxing, I guess. Now, Marshall, it's uh, Culture Corner or Podcast Extra. We ask our guests uh, to name a recent experience or a book or movie or action that they've done that you've enjoyed uh, or that you think our listeners might be interested in Marshall yes um, now I'm not actually a massive book reader um, even I mentioned the Australian ugliest ugliness before but um, my son's actually just finishing up reading um, Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for life which I, I desperately want to read I spent a lot of time watching uh, a lot of YouTube um, videos of, of Jordan Peterson he's a clinical psychologist and has a has a lot to say about various things in life, and um, I would definitely recommend um, viewer, uh, listeners to, um, to to look up Jordan Peterson because there's a lot of inspiration to be to be gained from him. Okay, and Jess, what's your podcast extra? Well, as you know, Pete, I'm a bit of a reader. Um, however, I've been struggling to actually find another book to read over the last couple of weeks, and um, I was getting my morning coffee um, about a week or so ago, and there was a guy sitting in my local cafe with this really colourful um, book, which just caught my eye. Anyway, I 
you know, got a little bit closer and tried to see what the name of it was because I was just very intrigued by it. It's called The um, the Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. So I've just started reading that one. So um, stay tuned. Well, what's that about, Jess? Um, it's about a it's about these two identical twins. So it's going back to a sort of 1940s and up really until the 1990s. Um, that's sort of this multi-generational family saga. So it's um, different to what I was anticipating it to be, but so far I'm really enjoying it. What about you, Pete? Well, I've got a couple of things, Jess. I've been making some fantastic tomato relish. Tomatoes are cheap at the moment, so I've been making some fantastic relish and giving that to various people. I also did some of this thing called montage, which a friend is in the States, and um, what his wife did is, is sent links, and you can record a video, and that is then played to the, 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 the birthday boy or birthday, you know, whoever, and they, so they get a whole lot of videos of people just saying under two minutes of video message. And then you get to watch their reaction to after they've seen all the videos. So that, that's montage, which is something pretty good, Marshall. You should do it. And the other thing is, just following our last interview with Loudon Luca from uh, Malawi, um, some very deep thoughts about his culture. So that's inspired me to take up uh, Lent, Jess. So today's Shrove Tuesday and I'm giving up things for Lent for uh, 40 days or so. So did you have your pancakes today? I did have pancakes this morning. Yes. Fantastic. And uh, so for Lent, I'm giving up chocolate and beer. So hopefully I can stay the distance. Yes. It's two very difficult things. Marshall, any thoughts on that? Uh, No, I wish you all the best there, Pete. It's going to be a massive challenge for you, I reckon. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> All right, particularly with the footy season. So, Marshall, you've been a wonderful guest. I've been so looking forward to uh, this. I've got the greatest respect for you as a professional and as a person. So it's been a real treat. And Jess, always wonderful doing podcasts with you. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Marshall. Yeah, thanks, Peter. And yeah, thanks, Pete, Jess. 